Hello and welcome to Saintly Progress, a podcast that looks at the history of Christianity through the stories of some of its most notable figures. Today, we're going to be looking at our first major saint, Mark the Evangelist. Saint Mark is one of the four gospel writers and therefore a significant figure in the New Testament and in early Christian history. Through looking at his story, we will be able to take a deep dive into the early church and hopefully understand a little more of how the first generation of Christians lived and worshipped. A short biography of St. Mark would traditionally go something like this. He was one of the first Christian converts. He hosted Jesus and his disciples at his home in Jerusalem during Holy Week and went on to become a companion of Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. He ended up in Rome where St. Peter, leader of the church in Rome, dictated to him his memories of the life of Jesus. This dictation became the core of Mark's gospel. After Peter's martyrdom, Mark travelled to Alexandria in Egypt, where he founded the first Christian community there, and it is presumably in Alexandria that he died sometime after 70 AD. That would be the traditional life of St. Mark. The trouble is that there is little historical evidence to support this as an accurate account of the life of the author of Mark's Gospel. St. Mark is a really good example of the divergence between Christian history and what I like to call Christian mythology. This is because the historical figure of Mark, who wrote the shortest Gospel, is different in some key respects to St. Mark the Evangelist, the figure of Christian veneration across the centuries. It was very common in the life of the church for real historical figures to develop over time into larger-than-life mythical figures in people's collective memory and imagination. Stories would be added to their lives and embellished, things would be attributed to them, and produce a figure quite distinct from the real historical person, but still an important figure for later generations of Christians in worship and storytelling. Saint Mark is one of those, In this episode, we will talk a little about the mythical figure of St. Mark that developed in the church's tradition, and then try to reconstruct as best we can the historical figure who wrote the Gospel. We will also look at how historians think Mark's Gospel came to be written. Okay, first things first. The text that Christians use today and know as the Gospel of Mark was written sometime in the mid-first century, and clearly must have had an author. We'll talk later about the various theories for how it came to be written, but I hope you will agree with me that most texts have someone who writes them down in the first instance. This person is the historical figure we are trying to impact today. Most biblical scholars seeking to avoid associating the authorship of the Gospel with the mythical character St. Mark, generally speak of the author of Mark's Gospel. I think this is rather clunky, so I hope you will forgive me if I simply refer to the author as Mark. So, let's recap. So far, we have a mid-first century figure called Mark who wrote the earliest surviving account of the life of Jesus. But do we know anything more about this figure? And why do we think he was called Mark? There are three historical characters in the New Testament 
who are called Mark. The first is a character in the Acts of the Apostles called John Mark. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when St. Peter escapes from prison in Jerusalem, he goes straight to the house of a Christian woman whose son was called Mark. I'll quote here. Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. There was a large group of people there at the house of Mary and John Mark, who are presumably among those people converted by Jesus and the disciples in their week ministering in Jerusalem, or previously in the surrounding countryside. I'm assuming that Mary, the mother of John Mark, was a widow, otherwise the story would have probably mentioned her husband. That point alone does give us a little insight into how the early church worked. It seems that the first Christians met in private homes, presumably in the homes of believers who had enough space to accommodate a large group. And also, a lot of the early church leaders, perhaps because of this domestic setting, were women. And it is not so unusual to believe that richer women or widows with some sort of independent means were among these early female leaders. This now is entirely speculation, uh, as the short passage in Acts is literally the only source on this, but it is possible that the house of Mary and John Mark was the first church in Jerusalem, the headquarters of the Jesus movement after Jesus' arrival in the Holy City. It seems plausible that Mary and John Mark went out to see Jesus and the disciples as they approached Jerusalem, or were converted after Jesus and the gang arrived, and that after a day or two, they offered their own home as a place for the group to stay. The Gospels do generally agree that Jesus stayed the nights in Bethany, a village outside Jerusalem. But at least one historian, the 19th century biblical scholar Alfred Eldersheim, suggests that John Mark and Mary's house was where Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Last Supper. This may have been the case, and it would make some sense for this, then, to be the house where the first Christians continued to meet after Jesus' death and resurrection. John Mark next appears in Acts as a companion of Paul and Barnabas. By this stage in the story, Paul, the Pharisee leader who had been persecuting those Jews who had become disciples of Jesus, had been converted on the road to Damascus and had begun to travel around the Eastern Mediterranean, preaching and founding churches. On one of his first recorded journeys, he travels with Barnabas, presumably another early convert, and John Mark. They go to Antioch, and then they sail to Cyprus. As a side note, I find it really interesting to note all these other minor characters among the very earliest Christians. In the popular imagination, when the New Testament talks about the disciples, we generally think of Jesus and 12 dudes wandering around the Galilean countryside. But it would seem that even before the crucifixion, there was a larger group travelling with Jesus at least some of the time. And we know from the book of Acts that it was quite early on after the resurrection that there were thousands of people baptised, many of whom presumably assumed positions of leadership alongside the remaining 11 apostles. Back to the story. In Cyprus, 
Paul, Barnabas and John Mark preach in the Jewish synagogue and confront and overcome a false prophet called Bar-Jesus and a magician called Elimus, both of whom seem to be retainers of the Roman governor of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus. He was a real historical figure, confirmed in Roman administrative accounts. Paul and co. managed to convert him, and so Sergius Paulus counts as one of the very first Roman Christians. After this triumph, Paul and Barnabas continue on to Perga on the southern coast of Turkey, but John Mark returns to Jerusalem. This seems reasonable to me, particularly if he had left his old mother alone to host the Jerusalem church in their home, but it seems to have upset Paul. Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas return to Jerusalem for a council of church leaders, when Peter and Paul convinced the rest of the leadership that Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, who convert to Christianity do not also need to become Jews and get circumcised. After that, Paul and Barnabas decide to go on another mission to visit various churches they had founded. I'll quote now from Acts. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul decided not to take with them one who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in their work. The disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and set out. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That is the last we hear in the New Testament of John Mark. There is another interesting detail which may relate to this character. In Mark's Gospel, when Jesus is arrested in the garden at Gethsemane, a young man runs away from the struggle, stark naked. Look it up. Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. There is an old tradition that this was the author of the gospel, giving himself a cameo appearance. Alfred Eldersheim gives a colourful account of how this naked man was John Mark. He suggests that as Jesus and the disciples ate the Passover meal at his house, this was where the soldiers first looked for Jesus when they wanted to arrest him. John Mark was asleep when the soldiers arrived and jumped out of his bed, pulling on a thin robe. When the soldiers departed, John Mark followed them and then took part in the tussle between the soldiers and the disciples in the garden. And I'll quote, the soldiers attempted to lay hold on him when, disengaging himself from their grasp, he left his garment in their hands and fled. So, that is John Mark. The second New Testament character named Mark is a companion of Paul mentioned in several of Paul's letters. This Mark is described as a cousin of Barnabas and a Jew, and Paul says that Mark is very useful to him. The tradition has suggested that this Mark is the same as John Mark described in Acts. This seems possible, as we know that John Mark was a companion of Paul and in some way close to Barnabas. But then we also know that Paul and John Mark seem to have fallen out before Paul wrote his letters, so it seems unlikely that Paul would describe him as very useful. 
The biblical scholar Francis Maloney says that there is little evidence that John Mark and the Mark mentioned by Paul were the same person. I'm not sure. It could be, but it could also not be. What is clear is that Mark was an extremely common name at the time. It is an anglicisation of Marcus, one of the most common Roman first names. It seems to have been reasonably common at the time for people to have different names in different languages. And we also know that Jesus gave his followers nicknames, like Peter, who is really called Simon, Matthew, who is really called Levi, and so on. My thought, and this is really just speculation on my part here, is that John Mark may have been a Roman citizen of Jewish origin. Here's how that would work in terms of his name. Roman nobles generally had three names. Their pre-name, for example, Marcus. Their tribe name or extended family name, example, Junius. And their personal nickname or immediate family name, example, Brutus, yielding three names, example, Marcus, Junius, Brutus. When a Roman nobleman freed a slave, that slave became a Roman citizen and took the first two names of their former master, with their own slave name becoming the third name. So, the famous secretary of Cicero, full name Marcus Tullius Cicero, whose name was Tiro, became Marcus Tullius Tiro when he was freed. This also happened when a Roman general or governor granted citizenship to subject people in one of Rome's colonies. They took the first two names of that general and their own name became the third name. Many of the Roman commanders who were prominent in the East had the first name Marcus. Marcus Junius Brutus, Marcus Antonius, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. And they would have granted citizenship to many people, including Jews in Judea. When we consider that Johannes was an extremely common Jewish name, we must therefore conclude that there would have been a lot of people called, for instance, Marcus Antonius Johannes, or John Mark, in biblical Palestine. The third Mark in the New Testament is a companion of Peter, mentioned in the first letter of Peter. Tradition holds that the author of this letter was the Apostle Peter and that he wrote it from Rome where he had become the leader of the Christian community there, in other words, the first Pope. Christian tradition would hold that these three Marks, John Mark, Paul's friend Mark and Peter's friend Mark, were the same person. We have little evidence for this. As discussed above, John Mark was a friend of Barnabas and companion of Paul, and Paul's Mark is described as Barnabas' cousin. So that is a possible link. Then, it is often claimed that Paul wrote some of his letters from Rome, and therefore the Mark mentioned in both Paul's and Peter's letters were the same. This is not impossible, but as we have already suggested that Mark was just about the most common name in the Roman world, it's also not possible to say with uh, entire certainty. 
But what is the link between these characters and Mark, the author of Mark's Gospel? The connection between Mark, the friend of St. Peter in Rome, and Mark, the Gospel writer, is strengthened by a reference in the writings of Papias of Hierapolis, a bishop in about 130 AD. Papias' writings do not actually survive. He is quoted by Eusebius of Caesarea, the noted historian of the early church who lived in the 4th century AD. Papias writes that when Peter was living in Rome, he had an interpreter called Mark, who wrote down his recollections of the life and death of Jesus. These recollections, according to Papias, became the Gospel of Mark. This claim that Mark's Gospel was based on the personal testimony of St Peter, given in Rome just before Peter's death, is also made by Clement of Alexandria and Irenaeus of Lyon, two other 2nd century Christian leaders. This shows us that, if nothing else, that the tradition associating Mark's Gospel with the witness of St Peter in Rome was well established by the mid-2nd century. This links up neatly with the reference in the New Testament letter of Peter to a Mark, who Peter describes as my son. And there is, therefore, a single thread running through the four different Marks we have encountered so far. John Mark had probably seen Jesus and housed the early church in his home in Jerusalem. He later travelled with Paul and Barnabas. St Paul describes Mark in his letter as Barnabas' cousin in the letter to the Colossians, which some scholars think was written by Paul in Rome. Another letter written in Rome was the first letter of Peter, which also mentions a guy called Mark, who Peter describes as his son. And Papias tells us that it was this Mark who recorded St Peter's recollections and wrote them down in what became known as Mark's Gospel. This thread linking through those four Marks is the basis for the tradition of the character of St Mark the Evangelist. The tradition is important because it links the text of the Gospel both to the life of Christ, because John Mark probably saw Jesus himself, and also because it suggests that Mark is recording the memories of Peter, which make the Gospel extremely valuable as a source of Jesus' teachings. The trouble, however, from an historical point of view, is that the single thread connecting those four Marks is not really credible enough to suggest that any of them were the same person. As we've said already, Mark was one of the most common names in the Roman world, and in each case there's only one thread connecting them. They may be the same person, and Mark the Gospel writer may well have been a prominent figure in the early church, but it's hard to make all those connections with any certainty. So then, I expect you'll be asking, what do we know about St Mark the Evangelist, and why is the Gospel worth reading at all? This leads us into the question of how the Gospels came to be written. Historians are pretty sure that the Gospels were not, as the popular imagination would believe, written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life or significant characters in the story. 
The biblical scholar Bart Ehrman makes the point that if they were written by participants in the story, they would almost certainly say so and be made more authentic by personal details or by writing in the first person. Like, one day Jesus and I went up to Jerusalem, that sort of thing. He also reminds us that the apostles were mostly illiterate Galilean fishermen, and it is therefore unlikely that they went back to school after Jesus' death and became fluent in fairly elegant Greek in order to pen the Gospels. The only Gospel that gives any details on where the stories came from is Luke, and he is quite clear that he did not take part in the events and only heard about them later. Historians now think that the Gospels were composed in the mid to late 1st century, a few decades after the life of Jesus, and were based on the oral tradition, songs, proverbs, worship services, and a few small written accounts that were circulating in the early church. Here's how that would work. As Christianity spread, new converts would ask for information about Jesus. They wanted to know who he was, what he did, how he died, what he said, what his followers were like, and so on. So Christians began to tell each other stories about the life of Jesus. The first of these stories were, of course, told by the apostles and then other eyewitnesses, and then these were passed on, formalised, written down, some adapted, some set to music and sung. The stories came to be told in informal evangelism, formal teaching, in letters, and in worship. Just as today we have sermons, hymns, formal liturgy, recited creeds, and informal storytelling, all of which convey something of the life of Jesus. Told by an increasing number of people in different languages, the stories would have become increasingly variable as people adapted them to their needs. A congregation dealing with a particular problem would have played up and emphasised the sayings of Jesus about their problem, and so on. The evangelists, the men who eventually wrote down the original texts which became the four Gospels, probably recorded, edited and arranged the stories they knew that fitted the particular version of the life of Jesus they wanted to tell or their community needed to hear. We know that the Gospels do contain stories that were changed, as different Gospels often tell the same story, but with different details. So some stories in the Gospels did happen. Some were embellished, and some were made up. But all are meant to convey the truth as the storyteller saw it about Jesus. Does it matter that Mark's Gospel and the others were not written by eyewitnesses and may even have been embellished by early Christians to meet their needs? I don't think so. I'll quote from Bart Ehrman again. We have reason to think that early Christians were not so concerned that stories about Jesus were being changed. Odd as it may seem to us, most believers seem to have been less concerned than we are about what we could call the facts of history. Even though we, as 20th century persons, tend to think that something cannot be true unless it happened, ancient Christians, along with a lot of other ancient people, did not think this way. For them, something could be true whether or not it had happened, 
What mattered more than historical fact was what we might call religious or moral truth. And in my view, it does not matter that Mark the Evangelist did not see Jesus personally or even get the information from Peter. History shows us that through the oral tradition, there is a direct link between Mark's gospel and the life of Jesus through the collective memory of the early Christians. I'm going to take a brief diversion while we're here talking about how the Gospels were written to talk about something called the synoptic problem. Some listeners may have heard the Gospels of Mark, Matthew and Luke called collectively the synoptic Gospels. This is because large chunks of all three Gospels are very similar, almost word for word in many places. Even if they were all working from the same folk stories, songs and other oral traditions, it seems entirely unlikely that three evangelists came up with exactly the same words independently. The synoptic problem is what biblical scholars call the question of how the three are related to each other. And the received wisdom at the present time is that Mark was the original text and that both Matthew and Luke used Mark and added other material from various different sources. They think this because Mark is the shortest, because his Greek is sloppy, while the others have cleaned it up a bit. But most important is the comparison of the texts. Sometimes all three are very similar. Sometimes Mark and Matthew are similar and Luke differs. Sometimes Mark and Luke are similar and Matthew differs. But very rarely are Matthew and Luke similar when Mark differs. The scholars therefore believe that Luke and Matthew must have both used Mark, but been unaware of each other. Okay, back to the identity of Mark. If he wasn't the Mark of the New Testament, what do we know about him? Scholars think we can work out a good deal about Mark and his community by looking at the text of the Gospel itself. Here's Bart Ehrman again. We do not know who the author was, only that he was a Greek-speaking Christian, presumably living outside of Palestine, who had heard a number of stories about Jesus. He says that this community must have been a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Mark has to explain some Jewish customs and actually misunderstand some of them himself, and his geography of Galilee and Judea is sketchy, so he probably wasn't very familiar with the area. This community seems to have been in continued opposition to the local Jewish synagogue. At this time, the Christian movement was still functioning as a part of Judaism, with its members taking part in Jewish religion, including attending synagogue, but also meeting on Sundays to celebrate the Eucharist and tell stories about Jesus. They were one of several denominations within Judaism, all vying to become the mainstream, alongside the likes of the Herodians, the Essenes, the Gnostics, the Sadducees, who were in control of the temple, and the famous Pharisees. Historians think that the synagogue leaders in many places who may have been part of the Sadducees or Pharisees, condemned the Christians, which is why the Gospels all emphasise that it was the Pharisees who did not understand Jesus. 
Francis Maloney thinks that Mark's gospel was written in this context and in the chaos following the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Romans in 70 AD. This is a time when Judaism was struggling to understand itself following the loss of the temple. Part of that may have included closing ranks and expelling the Christians. This was a time when the Christian community was having a hard time. They'd been making converts, but it was difficult for the new converts as they were being rejected by their families and communities. This was a time when the Christian church needed to define itself as a distinct movement. It was also around this time that the first generation of leaders, like St. Peter, were dying out, and there was probably a need to write down and codify their memories. Maloney thinks that Mark's Gospel was written around this time to bolster a community worried that its new converts would not be prepared to withstand persecution and death for the sake of Jesus. Mark seems to have been familiar with Roman government and uses a lot of Latin words, but that could place him anywhere in the Roman East. Maloney suggests, therefore, that the Gospel was written sometime between 70 and 75 AD, somewhere in Roman Syria. But, but, we come back to the question that has followed us from the beginning of the story. Why Mark? Where does the name Mark come from? We know that within a few decades of the text being written, the church was calling it Mark's Gospel. But where does that name come from? Why did this unknown church leader who sometime between 70 and 75 wrote A Life of Jesus, become known as Mark. Early Christians liked to associate their new scriptures with figures associated with Jesus to lend them authority and sanctity, just as Old Testament books were given credence by association with Moses, David, Solomon and so on. For instance, Moses was officially believed to have been the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, but this is clearly untrue because he dies at the end. So, it seems that the early Christians attached names of people in the stories to their scriptures, even if they didn't have any grounds for assuming they really were written by people who knew Jesus. In the case of Mark's Gospel, as we've already noted, it was traditionally associated with the various characters in other parts of the New Testament called Mark. But why did the early church connect this text with someone called Mark? Frank Maloney has a very simple yet intriguing answer. He argues that the early church fathers made the link between this gospel and the various New Testament Marks because they knew that the Gospel had been written by someone called Mark. It's easy enough for us to believe that there was residual memory in the very early church that there was someone called Mark who had written an account of the life of Jesus. Clifton Black, another scholar, agrees with this and even goes on to say that the church fathers must have known Mark's Gospel was written by someone called Mark Otherwise, they would have attached a more impressive name to it, such as Peter, like they did with the Gospels of Matthew and John. 
We have already discussed how the tradition associated Mark's gospel with the account of Peter. Why not just call it Peter's gospel? The reason may be that they did indeed know that it was written by a Mark. But that is all we can know. Our quote here from Maloney, whether he was one of the several Marks who appear in the New Testament or another figure who never appears there is beyond our historical knowledge. So, at the end of our story, we have two Marks. We have the mythical Saint Mark the Evangelist, early convert, naked cameo, host of the Last Supper, companion of Paul and Barnabas, secretary of St. Peter. And we have the shadowy historical Mark, a literate, Greek-speaking, Jewish convert to Christianity, Roman citizen, leader of a church somewhere in Roman Syria, trying to define the Christian story to hold together his community in the face of persecution. They may have been connected in some way, but they may not. Either way, the author of Mark's Gospel is an important figure in the early church, even if he wasn't the mythical Saint Mark, and that gives his Gospel important weight. I also think that the myth is important too. A religion does not need to be entirely based on history. It uses myths, songs and layers of tradition to build up something that its believers know to be true, in a different way to historical fact. The mythical story, which gives Christians an easy-to-understand reason for why the gospel is important. It's not a story we need, because history shows us that the gospel is important regardless. But as the oral tradition is not the most exciting or easy-to-follow story, it is good to have this compelling mythical version. Thanks for listening to the story of St. Mark the Evangelist and this episode of Saintly Progress. If you enjoyed it, please do consider subscribing and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. And do tell people about it. If you'd like to get in touch, you can send me an email at saintlyprogress at gmail.com. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about St. Helena of Constantinople, the British-born mother of the Emperor Constantine, who reinvented Jerusalem as a Christian centre and made a key contribution to the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Until then, thanks for listening.